Well, we are in a series looking at discipleship in John chapters 13 through 17 and Jesus' final teaching to his disciples before he was crucified. We are looking at this section of John because as Christians, we should want to walk in Jesus' ways. We should want to learn how to be his disciples, but it is exceedingly difficult to do this, let alone even to desire it, when most people believe and promote, really as as the highest good, the self-centered pursuit of personal happiness, pleasure, and fulfillment. We want what we want, and we want it right now, and who are you to say that I should not have it? It's like one of the quotes from the men's study this past week, where it said, biblical manhood is the defeat of childhood narcissism. And so you ought to be able to hear the childishness in the, I want what I want when I want it. So that is, you know, both for for men and women, growth in Christ is growing past the sinful, navel-gazing, inwardly focused pursuit of the self, and instead becoming outwardly focused, self-sacrificing love for the other sort of people. It is the growth from being toddlers to mature adults whose lives are shaped to Christ and his ways. Well, last week we looked specifically at John chapter 14, verses 15 through 24, and the role of the Spirit in the believer's life. And this week we're looking even more at the Spirit, the paraclete, as we talked about him last week, the one who comes alongside us, our our true friend, who, uh, as Jesus describes him, unites us to God, guiding us in all truth, counseling us, directing us, comforting us, correcting us, and perpetually pointing us back to Jesus. Again, we are in chapter 14. We're going to pick it up with verse 25. Let me read for us. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray in this time that you would be glorified through your Son in the power of the Spirit. We pray that that same Spirit would be in and amongst us at this time, that this word from Jesus would be good for us, that it would build us up in faith, in love, in holiness, in godliness, in our desire to want to pursue you. To that end, Lord, we want lives that would glorify you. So we pray for that, and we pray it in Jesus' name. In the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, in terms of the larger flow of the passage, Jesus uh, 
has just said, this is where we ended off last time, that those, those who love him will keep his word, but those who don't love him, they don't keep his word. It's a warning to his disciples that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is truly his disciple, as Judas would soon demonstrate in the coming chapters. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am with you, as in, I have given you everything you need to know. But in case the disciples were thinking, well, this is really you know, great teaching, but how on earth am I going to remember all this stuff? Jesus follows up with, but the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So two things to point out about this. First, this is one of the clearest statements of the Trinity coming directly from Jesus' own mouth that you can find, really, in the New Testament. The Father sends the Spirit in Jesus' name, and the Spirit, which is not an it, but a he, indicating that the Spirit is not a force, for example, but a person, he will teach the disciples. This is why, for example, the Nicene Creed confesses, in light of passages just like this one, it says, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, that's personhood, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. As Herman Bovink rightly says, the Trinity does not come from philosophical speculation. Lots of people outside the church think that, but it's not true. It comes from deep meditation and study of Scripture on passages just like this one. So second, what does Jesus say the Spirit will do for them in just that, that brief sentence? The Spirit will teach them all things, bringing to memory what Jesus taught them. So when Jesus says all things, he doesn't mean everything there is to know in the world. You know, the Spirit doesn't teach long division, for example. No, he teaches what Jesus taught and brings to mind the word from the word made flesh. That's why the authors of the Nicene Creed rightly see the prophets as being led by the Spirit and why Paul says these very important words to Timothy, his disciple, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's important, by the way. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out. That's a reference to the spirit, by the way. The word for spirit in Greek is the same word for breath. It's pneuma. The spirit breathes out. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what does the spirit teach? He teaches... He breathes out Jesus Christ as Lord, and in turn, these words about Jesus, which is what Scripture is, 
This word is useful and good for building us up in Christ Jesus. Does that answer every single question we might possibly have about the world? No, not at all. But it does answer what we need to be built up in Christ Jesus. You know, remember, as we've been saying throughout the series, our identity is not a self-constructed thing. We don't define ourselves. We aren't children who name themselves. That's what our modern culture is trying to do. No, we are defined. We are named by God. We are in Christ. That's why you can't baptize yourself. That's why baptism is something that happens to you. It is something that is done to you by God himself. Martin Luther used to say, the only thing the Spirit talks about is Christ Jesus. It's why John says in his first letter that his people, because of false prophets, are to test the spirits, plural, spirits. He writes, by this you know the Spirit of God, that is the true Spirit. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So when you hear someone say, for example, I have a word from God, or I have a new revelation from the spirit, you ought to be instantly hesitant. If the spirit loves to talk about Jesus, why would he need to say something new? You know, so-called new words from God typically lead to heresies like Mormonism or Islam, precisely because Jesus, as the prophets and apostles spoke about him, is not enough. If, you know, whatever this new word is doesn't sound like scripture, if it's not pointing you to directly, directly to Jesus as you find him there in the Gospels, then it is not from the Spirit of God. You know, in other words, what Jesus demonstrated and taught in his earthly three-year ministry, the Spirit reinforces and teaches afresh to each generation, which should tell you we don't need a new word from God any more than we need a new Messiah. Okay, let's keep going. In verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Now, that phrase, peace be to you, is a traditional Jewish way of saying hello and goodbye. And you should have noticed this, for example, in Paul's letters, because he'll say grace to you or peace be with you, uh, either in closing or, or in his greetings. But this isn't just goodbye. Through the Spirit, Jesus will inhabit his people. The triune God will make his home in them, and he will give them peace. But it is not the kind of peace the world looks for. To the world... Peace is a lack of problems. It's why Caesar Augustus could, you know, with a straight face, uh, claim to have brought the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, to the world. And how did he do that? Through a lot of bloodshed, and, and the peace was kept with an iron fist. So you could have peace just so long as you bent your will to Caesar. You see, to the world, peace means bread and circuses. It means pros material prosperity. It means ease and comfort. It means you shouldn't have to deal with suffering or anxiety or depression. It means getting what you want when you want it. I mean, just 
pay attention to the commercials and how often they say, you deserve peace of mind. And what do they offer? Everything I just said. That's not the peace Jesus offers his people. His disciples would face real hardship, some of them being crucified themselves. They're going to face persecution and pain and suffering, even as they actually had shalom, that is peace. Now, shalom, which shows up all throughout the Old Testament, in fact, that's Solomon's name, shalom, is it's the cessation of alienation and war with God. That's what's in view. It's wholeheartedness with God. The peace that surpasses all understanding is not material prosperity or security cameras. It's living in communion with God as his people, no matter the circumstances. That's why it's peace that surpasses our understanding. You know, remember, in this section of John, Jesus is telling them things are going to get much worse. We just read in 2 Timothy that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, not maybe, they will be persecuted. So when Jesus talks about peace, we cannot, we must not assume a worldly version of that peace. It's like a scene in a show I'm watching right now, and I'm not going to name the show so that I won't spoil it for anyone. But the scene is where this young man who has spent four years in prison for vehicular manslaughter. He was drunk and he killed a young woman and it's an AA meeting and he finally he finally admits that he was responsible for her death and then in the very next second he turns and blames God for all of it. Because if God was good, he would not allow suffering to happen at all. It's, you know, the blame shifting of yeah, I did it, but it's really your fault that we see with Adam doing the exact same thing in the garden. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. And the priest leading this, this uh, meeting, he gently pushes back. And, and I can't believe this actually showed up in a TV show. The priest says, you know, I hear you, but nowhere in scripture does God minimize or negate human agency and responsibility, as in, Don't blame God for the misery you caused. But then he goes on to say, but God does take human evil and suffering, and he does use it for good purposes. But because we have such a stunted view of peace and prosperity, modern people can't make sense of that. We really struggle to see how any good can come from pain or suffering or how anyone can find peace in the midst of it. Never you mind that the greatest good the world has ever known came out of the worst atrocity ever committed. That is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, this is not a call to toughen up or to get it together. It's a reminder that God is with his people in the midst of their hardest moments. And the road will be dark. It will be dark at times, but it will not be the end of you, even when it ends in death. It's like that great and beautiful hymn, It Is Well. You know, when it says, where it says, you know, when peace like a river attends your way, that is when 
the God of peace is with you, when you have shalom, no matter if your sorrows are like a billowing sea, do you get the image? Like a tempest that is just pouring over you, that it won't stop, or you are attacked by Satan himself, or your sin has so overcome you, it is well with you. Why? Because you are God's, and he has made his home in you. And what the the hymn writer rightly understands is that he will face sorrow. He will face temptation and persecution. He will face failure and guilt and shame for his sin. All those things are real parts of the Christian life. But despite them all, Christ is with us, just as he promised his disciples in this passage. That means then that for the Christian, no matter our situation, we can neither neither be pessimists nor optimists. So pessimists think no good can come from anything, that everything's just bad. They can't see how God can be good when things are so awful. You know, it's like Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, who just renames herself bitterness. Just call me bitterness. But optimists are no better because they refuse to see the writing on the wall and resist entering into pain and suffering by refusing to say what a thing is. You know, the sun's going to come up tomorrow, y'all. Except one day for each of us, it's not. As Christians, we we must be people who look realistically at this life with hope, not because we've got it together, but because our God does and we are in Christ. Well, in verses 28 and 29, Jesus, he reaffirms again that he's leaving his disciples, but he's coming back to them. He will soon die, be resurrected and return to them. That's going to happen in relatively short order and will confirm to them everything he has taught them. But as we mentioned last week, he's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father where he will rule over all creation and intercede for his people. But he will come to them through the Spirit and will make his home in them. So though he is absent in the flesh, or as we should say, we we don't see him, he is present with us and makes his home in us. He then says something I think is a little puzzling to us. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, this phrase has been used by groups like the Mormons to argue that Jesus and the Father are not equals, but rather Jesus as the Son of God is less than God, though still somewhat divine. Well, that's not what Jesus means here at all. I mean, think of it this way. This is what John says. This is what the New Testament consistently argues, that Jesus is the fullest revelation of God there is. So if you've seen Jesus, then you've seen the Father. He has made the Father known. So think of it this way. John could recline and rest on Jesus' chest. We looked at that just a few weeks ago. But compare that against the typical reaction of people have coming into God's throne room in the Old Testament, like just think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where fear and awe and terror and a woe is me, you know, and an inability to even look at God. That's the scene. See, God the Father is glorious beyond belief. And he has chosen to reveal himself to us in his son, who Isaiah says, 
Much later in the book of Isaiah, he wasn't much to look at, not at all. So God, out of his his kindness and tenderness, condescends to meet us where we are because he wants to dwell with us. It's like when you see, for example, a world-famous celebrity maybe or athlete or a really powerful person, like say a president or something like that. You see that person getting on the floor, like on their knees and they're, they're playing with children. That's condescension. And you know what? It's beautiful. It's beautiful when you see that kind of humility in a person. Well, Jesus shows us the Father by becoming as we are, only without sin. Now, to be sure, we get glimpses of the radiance of Jesus and his transfiguration and his post-resurrection appearances. I mean, he blinded Paul on the road to Damascus. But for us and our salvation, he humbled himself, becoming one of us so that we might, as David longed to do, gaze upon the glory of God. See, Jesus is the one who can behold his father's face. And Jesus alone can make him known to us. And as Jesus says, you know, if we loved him, we should rejoice with him that he gets to return to his father. You know, part of me wants to say, well, of course. Of course I should rejoice at Jesus returning to the father. That means I have an advocate at the right hand of God and I get the presence of the spirit. And while that is true, and it's good, that sort of thinking turns Jesus into a tool, a lever for my benefit. It's like how people reduce the value of Jesus to essentially a doorman who can get you to heaven. It's loving Jesus for his benefits instead of loving Jesus himself. I think we should long for Jesus to be glorified and to be rewarded. We should want good for him, not just good from him. I mean, can you see the difference there? Again, it's the difference between narcissistic childhood where we are only interested in what we get out of something versus mature adulthood where we have an outward-facing love for the sake of the other person. Like how we should you know, love our friends or our spouses. We love them for who they are, not what we can get out of them. We, we should love Jesus not just because he has been good to us, which he has, but simply because of who he is. And this is hard. This is a step I have not mastered yet. Not at all. I still feel like a toddler. It's like the question rich people or famous people constantly face. Does this person actually like me? Or do they like me for what I can do for them? Jesus tells his disciples, I have told you all of this stuff before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. You see, the vast majority of future telling prophecy in the Bible is short term. It's short term. God tells his people something that is either about to happen, just think of Jonah and Nineveh, or it will happen in their lifetimes. It's like God telling Moses exactly what he was going to do in Egypt, and then he confirmed every last bit of it. So here, Jesus has told them repeatedly of his coming death and resurrection so that when it does happen, his role as the word of God will be confirmed to them. You see, everything Jesus taught and did, everything he said, the truth of scripture itself, 
It all depends on his death and resurrection. So without his resurrection, frankly, everything we've been talking about is a waste of time. Without his resurrection, there is no good reason, no good reason to fight against our childish selfishness and pursue maturity. It's like what Czeslaw Milos said. He said, a true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that for our betrayals, our greed, our cowardice, murders, we're not going to be judged. Just think of Epstein. You'll see it. And that's how most people live. That's how most people live, as if there is no judgment, including some Christians. Now, in the final two verses, Jesus tells his disciples that his teaching is nearing its end, though we have three more chapters to go, and that the ruler of this world is coming, that is Satan, but he has no claim on Jesus. So this is yet another courtroom that Jesus will have to face. The first was his temptation in the wilderness where Satan came to Jesus just as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden and he presented ways of being the Messiah, the faithful one of God, apart from God's will. Will you keep the faith? Will you keep God's command? Adam and Eve said no. Jesus passed the test by saying yes. Yes, I will. Jesus then would soon face this again in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, a garden on top of a mountain that was actually a symbolic Eden of sorts, where the temptation at that place, in that garden, at that time, was to turn away from God's command because of the suffering it would entail. See, Satan is the ruler of this world for a short time anyway, not because he has actual real dominion over it, but because the world has followed after him. And God allowed for that to happen. Even so, Jesus is taking back his creation. That said, Satan often functions just like we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane or in the book of Job or in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. He, He functions as the accuser of God's people. So like with Job, he questions to God's face whether Job really loves God. And to Job, he questions whether God is actually good and whether his commandments are worth keeping, and he does it through his friends. Isn't God keeping something back? Isn't God evil for denying you what you want? It's not fair. You know, if God loved you, should you really ever have to suffer like this? You know, even as Satan is coming to make a claim on Jesus, Jesus will remain steadfast to what God has commanded him to do. Why? As Jesus says, so the world, despite its opposition to Jesus, really especially because of its opposition to him, may know that Jesus truly loves the Father. See, Jesus, the new and better Adam, he keeps faith with God despite the serpent's temptation so that the world may turn. The world may turn from its evil and find life in him instead of following after Satan. And what's fascinating to me is how both Satan and the temptation to reject Jesus figures a lot throughout chapters 13 through 17. Jesus will say incredibly comforting things and then follow it up with talk of betrayal 
or false disciples or the real threat of Satan. And the reason I think he does this is because he really wants his disciples to have a realistic picture of what life in his kingdom looks like. We have life with God. We are united to him and have his his peace, his shalom, and nothing can beat that. But it's not without temptation and it's not without suffering. We know in our passage that Jesus will soon be tortured and it brings to mind again that those who pursue godliness, as Paul tells Timothy, they will be persecuted for it. But I also can't help but think of Jesus's first temptation like Job's in a way, that that hit him square in the heart with things like comfort and influence and family and power. That's where we live, I think. I recently finished the book Life at the Bottom by Theodore Dalrymple, a, a British psychiatrist and social commentator who worked in both a hospital and a prison. They were side by side in the slums of a British city. And he was convinced, even as an atheist, that what the Western world faces is not material poverty so much, like what you see, say, in India, but spiritual poverty. Even the poorest among us do not have to worry, really, about getting calories. In fact, there is a raging obesity problem among the poor, just as there is in every social class. You know, as opposed to other countries, There's no reason a person cannot have food, clothing, and shelter, things that traditionally marked someone as poor because they could not get them. No, as he saw it, and he had tens of thousands of interactions with the poor and the data to point to, our poverty is a spiritual one. That's not to say that there isn't real material problems. Of course there is. But it's really the rejection of agency and responsibility. You know, we can blame anything other than ourselves for our actions. We can explain them away by pointing to our culture or our race or disease or emotional issues or power imbalances as to why we are not responsible and are truly victims and should not be counted anything. It's a loss of purpose and meaning. We live in what James Edwards calls our normal nihilism in which everyone must create their own meaning and identity and purpose because there is none. It's the constant ingestion of food we do not have to cook with nonstop distractions and diversions that encourage us, all of it, to passivity. You know, since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, it's the loss of sexual and relational standards that has absolutely decimated family life, especially among the poor, though it is increasingly hitting the middle class too. It's the rejection of maturity in favor of a youth culture that rejects self-control and sacrifice. Never want to grow old. Not going to be the man. You know, the opium of the masses contra Marx is not Christianity. It's the belief that nothing we do really matters. And there will be no judgment for our lives. If there is no judgment, then there is no such thing as ethics. There's no such thing as meaning. It's all just random. And for context, you know, much of what Dalrymple described was well before the advent of things like the internet and smartphones, a good 10 to 15 years before those things. 
So even though, you know, in our circles, we are not the poor underclass, we tend to take responsibility and have ethical standards and self-control. We, we tend to do those things seriously as it relates to financial issues. On virtually every other front, we have the same spiritual poverty. And in fact, we, we don't really need to fear persecution for pursuing godliness because we aren't. We aren't pursuing godliness all that much. No, instead, you know, Christian churches in this country are now more known for their scandals than for their godliness. You know, we of, of the well-educated middle and upper classes, we tend to be just as concerned with bread and circuses as the poor do. It's just that we don't expect the government to pay for it. Now, we'll, we'll gladly pay for it. We'll work to pay for it because we can afford a higher class of entertainment. You know, like the, the cautionary tale of, of the rich young ruler, we will find our life not in pursuing ourselves more, but in pursuing ourselves less for the sake of the other. See, the cost of discipleship, it does. It does sometimes come at the end of a gun. It does. You know, Satan certainly causes misery, and large sections of Jesus' people face that right now but he is just as likely to call into question the goodness and worth of the pursuit of godliness. I mean, after all, if we aren't pursuing godliness, which is just another way of saying, if we aren't pursuing God himself, what does Satan then need to call into question? Temptation often happens. It most often happens, I would argue, in the blue light of our ever-present screens. It happens in our homes when petty annoyances turn into hardness and indifference towards our spouses. It happens when we're tired. we rather not choose to engage with our children, but instead give them over to the indoctrination of their peers via TikTok and Instagram or Xbox. It happens when our friends who are Christians, no less, start reverting to the ways of the world and the social pressure to join in. It's not voiced. It's not like an after-school special from the 1980s, but you can feel it. It's the narcissistic boys-will-be-boys navel-gazing immaturity or the easy judgmentalism that comes in the form of gossip and the pressure to join in or else become a sort of Unwelcome Debbie Downer? Oh, we can't have fun with them here. That pressure is immense. You know, I've endured full in your face persecution where you are attacked and you are lied about publicly because you are doing what is right. And it's hard, but that's rare. I've only endured that once in my life. The places where I routinely fail are in my home or with my friends or when I choose the way of selfishness over the way of love or I choose the way of my past life over the way of Christ. And in all of it, it is a refusal to grow from childish narcissism into adulthood in Christ. And I know better. I can't blame that on anybody else or anything else but me. Some of you, no doubt, you're fighting different kinds of fights right now, I know. Some of you, 
are struggling through past trauma and depression, anxiety, uncertain futures for family members, hard diagnosis, death. But for others of us, the fight is simply to pursue godliness. And wherever you are right now, whether it's in the hard realities of trauma and loss, or it's in the hard realities of saying no to the world, it is well. It is well. Not because you can overcome your sorrow or you can undo your sin or have the strength really to face any and all temptations on your own because you don't. You don't. It is well because you are in Christ and he is in you. That is who you are. It's like the final words from the book, The Count of Monte Cristo. Until the day when God shall deign to reveal the future to man that is the second coming, all human wisdom is summed up in these two words, wait and hope. May our God grant that to be us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I believe it is well, even when it does not look like that to me, and it does not feel like that to me, and it feels like everything else is more relevant. I pray for us in this room, because I think despite our material prosperity, maybe because of it, our life is hard. It is hard to say no to the world and hard to say yes to you. So I pray for us, whether it's trauma or depression or simply worldliness, Lord, that you would work in us. I know you're patient. I know you're kind and you're long-suffering. I pray, please stay that way with us. Please keep working in us. I know you will. You are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.